We've been in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 38 through 50 this morning. And Matthew chapter 12 is all about confrontation. It's uh, a challenge and confrontation. And this actually is the third story. So there's three confrontation stories. And I, at, looking back, if you're, if you're here with us in 15 years when we preach through Matthew again, I think the way I'm going to frame this chapter is like a, a, a confrontation trilogy. So confrontations with Jesus. Because you have in verse 2, you have the Pharisees who confront him. And kind of the first round of the confrontation is all about their perspective perception about how he's um, not living in a way they think he should. And so they, they confront him and his disciples. And then that doesn't go well. And then starting in verse 24, we have kind of the second round of the confrontation and they confront him. This time they don't do it directly. They do it indirectly through kind of a subtle smear campaign. So they begin to slander and kind of behind his back, they say, oh, we know what's really going on here. And then that doesn't go that well. And then here we have kind of round three or volume three of our confrontation trilogy, and they're going to confront him. And this time they do it with kind of a, a veneer of care and concern and just common sense. They give him outward respect and they say, oh, teacher, we demand a sign from you. And so they're going to make this demand that on the surface could seem just like a reasonable, ordinary demand. But Jesus can see beneath the surface about what's really going on. And I've learned a lot from this about how to frame just uh, public controversies that become public and the different movements and the different aspects that can go on when you're engaged in these things. So this is, you know, maybe this is the end of a, a confrontation trilogy. And so we're going to pick up the verses in verse 38. And then what I want us to see this morning is kind of two aspects. One, the, the demands they make. So they make certain demands. And then Jesus says, this is the only sign you're going to get. So the demands they make, the sign they get, and then he's going to warn them about the danger they're in and the spirit they need. So the demands and then the sign, the danger, and the spirit. So let's look first at the demands they make. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees. Up until this point, it's just been the, the Pharisees. Now they go get the scribes. They go get the heavy hitters, the experts in the law. The first challenge was all about how they read and interpreted the law. And so they go and get the scribes, the legal experts, and they say to him, Teacher, so a title of respect and honor, rabbi, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So you think on the surface, you know, they're demanding this sign. And maybe on the surface, this seems like a, a courteous request. We're going to be courteous. We're looking for a sign. You think, all right, what type of demand are they making? What do they mean a sign? Maybe you think, all right, we want to see something that's going to prove the things you're saying. You're saying these things that are hard and difficult and challenging. So we want to see something that's going to prove it. And then from maybe from Jesus' disciples' perspective, they might think, well, wait, wait a second. You want to see a sign? Like, what other sign do you want to see? 
Was the man who had his shriveled hand healed and you saw that? Was that not good enough? Was the man who was blind and mute and demon-possessed and he was healed? Was that not good enough? Or maybe you could look back to chapter 8 and chapter 9 where that whole chapter gives us 10 different miracle stories where Jesus in this powerful way brings about restoration and healing to all of these different categories of physical and relational and spiritual bondage and brokenness. Is is that the kind of sign you want to see? What do you what type of sign do you really want to see? And it makes you wonder, you know, are they mocking him? Are they saying, all right, all the other stuff you've done up until this point, like that's child's play. We want to see something real. And so we think, all right, what are they demanding? They're basically saying, look, if you want us not to slander you publicly, then you have to prove yourself. But that's kind of the danger of public slander. Once it goes out, you know, it's already, the damage has already been done. So from their perspective, he's guilty until he proves himself innocent. He has to prove himself. And notice how Jesus responds. He answers them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he can see right through their demands and say, this demand that you're asking for, you're asking for this sign, you're asking for me to prove myself, this actually doesn't come from a place of good faith. This is not a good faith request. It actually flows from an evil and adulterous heart. And so you can think about, all right, how can we be in the danger of falling into the same trap or the same difficulty? What type of signs do we kind of demand or do we look for? You know, this is one of the challenges just in church life. We begin to look for certain signs. So if you're as a church, if you're more charismatically leaning, you'll look for certain signs about signs and wonders and sensations. Or if you're more, maybe more liberal leaning, you'll look for the signs of whatever the political hot topic is at that moment and that what needs to be addressed. Or maybe if you're a more missional church, you'll look at whatever's culturally relevant at the moment and follow those signs. Or more seeker oriented, you'll look for the signs of where people have certain felt needs and wherever they feel they are? You know, do they feel stuck in life? And then you'll try and help them this way. And all of those signs are meant in one sense to get people's attention. You know, say, all right, we're, we're, we, we want you to perform something for us to get, we've got to get people's attention. That's one of the things. I mean, we live in a real frantic world where everybody's fighting for attention. It does remind me, G.K. Chesterton, when he came in about 1910-ish, he came from London and visited uh, New York City. And so, you know, um, uh, Times Square is one of the most amazing places in the, uh, on earth, as long as you don't know English. Because you can look around, you see all these incredible signs, and it's lights, and they're flashing, and it's mesmerizing. But if you know English, you know all of the signs are all about selling you sugar, water, and soap. It's actually nothing that's very helpful in life. It's all advertisements. There's actually nothing to the signs. There's no substance. And one of the dangers of kind of looking for the signs out in the world is, uh, like William Temple said decades ago, that whenever the church marries itself to the spirit of one age, it'll find itself a widower in the next. 
And so all these different tendencies to look, this generation is demanding this sign. This is what we want to see. All right, if you're going to prove yourself to us and we're going to believe you and follow you, this is what we want to see. And Jesus says, no, this is actually not how this works. You know, one of the things we kind of say and we have at our house is uh, requests go up, commands come down. So you say, you know, requests go up, demands come down. So, for example, if you're three, you don't say, I'm thirsty. You say, All right, that, that's a demand. Requests go up. May I please have something to drink? That's, how, that's the, the flow of these things. And so here it's saying, no, no, you're making these demands. We got the, the direction is moving in the wrong way. And, you know, one of the things we don't want to ever, you know, even as a church, we want to ever get too uh, hit, hitch ourselves to kind of the spirit of the age because we live in a world with an incredibly, you know, the speed of faddishness is so fast. And, you know, when you kind of hitch yourself to the spirit of the age, you'll find yourself, even, you know, William Tyndale or Temple said one generation to the next, actually, maybe even one decade to the next, or maybe it's even faster than that. It's actually at a worship conference about five years ago when it was interesting because had the opportunity to sit with you know, some of the kind of kids who were at the very cutting edge of cool worship. So if they came in here this, this morning, this, this would not count as cool worship. And uh, they're the kind of cutting edge. And they were looking at this video from like 1990s. If you grew up in like a Southern Baptist kind of 1990s, it had a very dated feel. It was not cool. And they were looking at kind of making fun of, you know, look at this, this, this kind of thing. And you know, I did laugh and say, you know, it certainly isn't cool, but you do realize that your children are going to watch videos of your cool worship and be so embarrassed. Like that flannel and the beard and the whole look is going to be really embarrassing to your children. And actually, it might not be your children. It might be embarrassing now. There's an incredible speed to faddishness. And so they're demanding, all right, this is what we want to see. But Jesus is just not going to play that game with him. But I think it's worth asking, all right, in what ways do we kind of go through life demanding or looking for certain signs? I mean, maybe you just do it just kind of in your, uh, as you're looking for kind of general guidance. You know, all right, I need a sign. Should I go on this date with this person? Uh, should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Lord, I need a sign. Show me something so I can know. This past week, we were wrestling with uh, a certain larger expense, whether we're going to make the decision for our home and have a little area where I practice my putting. And I said, all right, here's how we'll determine this. I've got about a 12-foot putt here. It breaks slightly from right to left. If I make this putt, we'll go yes. If I miss, we'll say no. And I hit the putt. And unfortunately for us, my dog doesn't recognize the, the dynamics of this. So she thought I was playing with her and she pounced on the ball. So I don't know if we made it. So I don't know what we're going to do. We're still left in limbo. What are we going to choose? And we look for signs in our, in our life. But it's worth thinking about them. All right. They said, all right, teacher, we want to see. This is what we want to see. But if you hear the last two weeks, remember their whole problem is that they're spiritually blind. They can't see. They don't see what's right in front of them. This is what we want to see. What would have actually convinced them? Did all of the things they've already seen, did it not convince them? And Jesus recognizes that they're actually making this demand, but it's not about the demand. He knows that they're not ever going to be 
satisfied. They're demanding he prove himself, and in their minds, he's already guilty. So what can he do? And in one sense, every generation makes these kind of requests, I mean, to Jesus. So we, we all do. And most of the time, it's not an actual genuine desire. It's often a deflection. It's an excuse. So you'll say to people, you know, I'll believe in God if, um, you know, I'm not asking for much. If they just travel to Mars and find a Mars rock that says God was here, then I'll believe he exists. Or if we uh, decode a DNA strand that says the Bible is true homeboy, then I will believe. Uh, a couple years ago, there's a very prominent uh, public intellectual who was an atheist who would say things like, you know, I'm not an unreasonable person. I'm just looking for evidence. And someone said, well, what type of evidence would you need to play? His, his kind of stick was that uh, Jesus didn't exist. That it's all a fabrication. He didn't actually exist. He said, well, you know, just simple things like maybe DNA test or some type of uh, official docu- documents that demonstrate that he was here, like a birth certificate. That's not unreasonable at all. I mean, not counting the fact that that's actually what the ancient genealogies were. They were ancient birth certificates. So to say there's not any evidence when you discount all the evidence there is is kind of convenient. But um, DNA tests, sure. I mean, let's just, you're not unreasonable. You just want a time machine to go back in time and then prick him and get a DNA test and bring it forward. That's not unreasonable at all. Is that a genuine desire, genuine demand? Or for some people, it's not so much academic as it's more life. Like, I need, here's if, uh, I will believe in the Lord if he does this thing for me. If he cures this cancer, if he'll give me success in my business, if he'll bring my children back, place these different demands. What types of demands are you making? So maybe, or maybe you find yourself in a situation where you're the one not necessarily making unreasonable demands. They're being made on you. Think about all the different kind of categories in life where we can either make demands or have demands made upon us. And so often, if you challenge the Pharisees here, they've said, look, we're not asking for much. I mean, come on. We just want to see a sign. Maybe just write it in the clouds, you know. Uh, Jesus is my son, then we'll believe it. We're not really asking for much. But think about what other categories someone might think. Look, I'm not really asking that much. I mean, I'm not asking that much of you. I just demand perfect grades, perfect performance on the t-ball field, and you never, ever, ever act in any way that embarrasses me in public. I mean, what? that's not too much to ask, is it? I mean, I'm not asking that much. I just want a perfect home and enough disposable income so I can buy or be whatever I want, and we can have passes to every single theme park in this area and go whenever we want. That's not too much to ask. The world say, all right, we're not asking too much of you. We just want you to have a successful career, and then we want you to keep a perfect home, and then we want you to create meals from scratch every single day with no sugar and no preservatives. That's not asking too much, is it? Or maybe you've worked in a job where your employer would say, look, we're not asking that much of you. We just want your soul. Are we really demanding that much? We're a family, and so we expect you to give us uh, every waking moment of your cognitive attention. That's all we're asking. I had a funny conversation recently. Somebody was saying about their kid's teacher. They said, all we're asking is that they respond to our emails when we send them. But they're sending them emails in the middle of the day. You do realize that if they respond to your email at 12.15, it means they're not teaching your child. But we're not asking that much. 
So what areas do you live in where you think, all right, I'm not asking that much. These are unreasonable demands. And notice what Jesus says. It comes not from a good place. It comes from an evil place. An evil, adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given that except the prophet of Jonah. What sign do they get? I love it. You're not getting a sign. You want a sign? You're not getting one. Well, actually, you will get one. It's going to be the prophet of Jonah. Say, what in the world does that mean? Actually, he's going to give them two illustrations that are going to illustrate something key about their actual posture, the posture of their heart. For Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, Someone greater than Solomon is here. He says, all right, you want a sign? Here's a sign you're going to get. What you're actually going to get is two different groups of people who you, in one sense, despise and look down on. They're actually going to condemn you at judgment. These two great signs of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba because they actually reveal the posture of your heart. And the posture of your heart is revealed in, by your, um, the way you're responding to my word. Are you listening? Are you submitting to it? Do you place yourselves under it? Or do you stand over it as its Lord and Master? You know, their posture is, no, no, no. You prove yourself to us. We judge you, not the other way around. And so he's going to confront them, confront their dictates, desires, tastes, assumptions. You know, these two signs represent repentance and listening. And it's an interesting thing. Why Jonah? Isn't that an interesting uh, illustration? Why Jonah? And Jonah is a fascinating kind of study because in one sense, there's no specific sign of Jonah. The very fact that Jonah was just there preaching to the Ninevites was their sign. So Jonah, there was kind of this death or this movement of kind of a type of death then resurrection. Then he goes and he preaches. But actually the whole life of Jonah is going to be some kind of sign that was meant to point them to what Christ was doing. Jonah's rescue from death is a sign pointing forward to Christ's rescue from death. The repentance of the Ninevites is a sign to how we're supposed to respond respond to this type of preaching. When the mariners are saved through the sacrifice of Jonah, this points that they're going to be saved through Christ's sacrifice. And Jonah, as he goes down into the kind of the symbolic watery depths and then rises again, Jesus says, this is what you're going to see. I mean, the sign you get is actually right in front of you. And it's the reality of me standing here preaching to you. And you're going to see these things. And so the great sign is that they will experience after Jesus dies and rises again, and then he sends people to preach the crucified and resurrected Christ. That is the sign. That is the great evidence. That is the documentation. And so it's interesting just to think about, you know, such a three times in this chapter, maybe in 15 years, if we preach this again, we'll key in on those three phrases where he said, something greater is here. The greater one. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. But you contrast Jonah and Jesus. I mean, Jonah preached for three days, but Jesus, three years. Jonah to Assyrian unbelievers. Jesus to God's chosen people. Jonah is probably the weakest of all of the prophets, and Jesus is the greatest. Jonah dis 
disengaged and preached only God's wrath. Jesus preached God's grace and truth. Jonah came with no miracles. Jesus came with miracles. And yet, they believed and repented, and they're not listening to him. And Jesus himself is the sign. In the email this morning, I put in this powerful quote that I read this week from John Chrysostom because he's trying to draw people into what? Don't you realize there's something greater than Jonah here? And so how are you not listening? And part of the challenge there is they are not uh, living up to the reality of their opportunities. Saying, look, here's a sign is that people who had less opportunities than you have responded better than you have. And that should humble you. You shouldn't be on the offensive and the attack. And of course, that's a tremendously humbling thing to us. I mean, we live in the land of opportunity. And then we think, all right, what have we done with the opportunities we have? You know, I think about even, you know, like holding this thing. This is iPad, if you can't see it. On this iPad, I can pull up my Logos library, and I have at my fingertips a library that most pastors and scholars throughout history, it would be the envy of the world, have resources they could not even dream about. Then what have I done with those opportunities? Think about the tremendous opportunities around us. What do we do with them? That's his challenge. He says, you actually have something so much greater than what they had, and they have responded better than what you're doing. And then look in verse 42, when he shifts it to the queen of the south. You know, what she did in some ways is the opposite of the men of Nineveh because they received one who came to them, but she goes searching and she goes seeking. Look at the length she's going to travel to hear Solomon's wisdom and word. He says, look, she would travel all across the globe at tremendous cost to herself to hear the words of wisdom from Solomon. And one greater than Solomon is right here, and you're ignoring him. You're not paying him any attention. You're not listening. And that also is a challenge for us. How serious are we to seek him and pursue him? He says there's one greater. There's a greater prophet than Jonah that's here. There's a greater temple that's here. There's a greater king than Solomon is here. And so he's going to point them, you're in danger because your demand for a sign reveals a heart that's spiritually cold and you're neglecting this Savior. So look at 43. He's going to say, here's the danger you're in. And what he's doing here, this is kind of a strange series of verses where all throughout this chapter, Jesus is kind of peeling back the materialistic curtain and giving us a window into spiritual realities that are happening just under the surface. He says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from returning. It finds the house vacant, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they settle down here. And as a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this evil generation. So so you're in danger. And the danger is that because of Jesus' ministry and John's ministry, there's been this incredible kind of social purging and cleansing and and things are being righted and restored. And it's the images of kind of a a dirty house that needs to be cleaned. And he said that that the the house is being cleaned, but it hasn't been filled with something else. The demons are being cast out, but they haven't been replaced. And this is a challenging passage. 
You know, a couple of things that are just interesting. So unclean spirit comes out of a person and it roams through waterless places. What's he talking about there? Why waterless places? You know, water often in the, in the Bible is a, a symbol of judgment and a symbol of death. So they, they, you, you go through the waters of death. That's the symbolism of baptism. You pass through the waters of death and rise again to new life. So it's interesting. They go through waterless places. But the key idea here is that it's possible to encounter the person and work of Jesus and then actually at the end of the day to be worse. That's alarming. So it was interesting that St. Augustine really, this is a passage he really wrestled with and tried to wrestle, what does this mean? Because kind of their concept, he was living in a time when the Roman kind of world was collapsing and it was becoming more and more advantageous socially and economically and politically to be connected with the, the Christian church. And so you had, you know, it was becoming much more culturally uh, important. Because, all right, you actually... You have this interesting dynamic where it seems like you have people who are claiming on the, the exterior to be kind of fine, upstanding Christians, but something is not connecting. Something's not working. And part of their understanding of what baptism does is he says, you know, baptism cleanses you. It cleanses the house. But then if you don't then fill the house with the Spirit, you're, you can actually turn out worse. And so he really wrestled with, all right, we're supposed to be, so this is an image of being filled with uh, two types of spirits. And so what does it mean to actually be filled with the spirit? What does he inhabit or uh, clean? And then one of the things he really wrestled with is notice that number in verse 45. It goes away and brings with it seven other spirits. Why seven? Isn't that interesting? And one of the most important passages, actually here, let me read some of the things that he says about it. Uh, he says, you know, therefore, when he is the inhabitant, he fills up rules, acts, and deters from evil, inspires one to do good, and tempers justice with sweetness, so that one may do good with love of upright heart and not with a fear of punishment. So that's what, you know, the Spirit's cleaning you and what he wants to do. But once that unclean spirit has gone out, of you from your mind and when your sins have been forgiven it's going to roam throughout the world and then it can come back with seven other spirits what is meant by that what is meant by the seven spirits is this unclean spirit sevenfold it says by a sevenfold operation the holy spirit is committed to our care and then he quotes Isaiah 11:2. So actually, if we got Isaiah 11, chapter 2, for Augustine and many of the early church, this was the most important passage for understanding what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And so they would say that Jesus is the person who's filled by the Spirit, kind of par excellence. He's the ultimate. And to be filled by the Spirit is not some kind of weird, vis uh, visceral, visceral kind of sensation or something strange. It actually is to be filled this way. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you, shall dwell in you. And then this kind of sevenfold dynamic, this is spirit. And then these six categories of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might or strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he says you actually live kind of in a contest between will this spirit fill and be filled in you, this sevenfold spirit of God, or the sevenfold spirit of its opposites. So what are the opposites? A spirit of stupidity and error, a spirit of foolhardiness and cowardness, a spirit of ignorance and impiety. So kind of what does this mean to actually be filled 
with the Spirit. The first is wisdom and understanding. These are kind of judicial attributes of the way a king would rule and reign, but it's used in one sense of kind of cognitive terms, knowledge. So to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to be filled with something is going to fill your mind. And it's going to be of one of two dynamics, one of two spirits. So a cognitive understanding. But then the next one is counsel and might. Counsel and might. This is strategy and strength. This is more of action, the things you do. You have the ability to discern what's the proper course of action and then act it out. It's more about the will, your strength, the things you do. And then the final one of knowledge and fear. And remember, in this context, you know, knowledge is not things you know so much cognitive as emotional and relational connection. So kind of like in Genesis, you know, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. It's kind of knowledge. It's relational. It's intimate. So you have intimate connection and then reverence. And one of the things Augustine really wrestles with is in one sense, you're either going to be filled with this kind of spirit or you're going to be filled with its opposite. You won't be empty. And it's worth thinking about, all right, are we the type of people who are filled with the spirit? You know, everyone has certain weaknesses in one of these areas, either kind of mental or emotional, uh, relational or volitional or actional. But one of the great aspects of becoming filled by the Spirit is that you grow in each of these areas. You know, one opportunity, uh, we, t- we kind of joked about this a little bit last week, is one of the things I'm learning is that... Um, when you're engaged in something that's at one of these different levels, so think of it as like an emotional uh, level, it's not always helpful to bring words that are intellectual or volitional. So you kind of have these three different categories. We talk about the type of words we need. TLC are the words that bring life. Words that are true, on the top line. Words that are loving, that third one. And then words that are correct or appropriate, and then the middle one. So we actually had an opportunity this morning to put, you know, it's one of the challenges of being a preacher is you think about all this stuff and it lives with you and then you think, oh man, I have to actually do this. So we had a good opportunity this morning to try to employ words that are hopefully, it's the goal, wise and can meet each of these categories. So we woke up this morning and there was a crisis because the dog had gotten into one of our rooms and destroyed something we care and love about. So we're confronted with an emotional, a relational challenge. Here's something I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. And now my tendency might be to respond to the emotional category with um, maybe something out of the volitional. Well, you have to learn not to leave your things on the floor. Or maybe something with a cognitive. You know that having a dog, the dog chews up things. But at that moment, that's not what's needed. And the wise words can help you engage at the level that it's needed. At that moment, what's needed is to enter into the frustration. And then once you enter into the frustration, you can move down the other path. But this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And Jesus says you're not going to be empty. You're either going to be filled with a spirit of wisdom or you're going to be filled with a spirit of folly. And so what the Spirit does is in one sense it's the work of Jesus we get in the, in the image of Jonah. It's the work of Jesus to come and redeem us and rise again so that our houses can be cleansed. But then it's the work of the Holy Spirit to fill us. 
And what does he do? It's his job to bring the presence of the Lord down. His central work is that, uh, you know, all the great promises of the new covenant that shall come to pass in latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm not going to hide my face from them anymore. I'll pour out my spirit on them. And so his spirit comes and what he does when he comes is he helps us to see Christ and to love Him and celebrate Him. So when the Spirit comes and He opens up disciples' eyes, like in Luke chapter 24, where they then can see that the whole Bible points to Him, and they love Him, and He comes and He can empower certain preaching so they respond in acts, you know, cut to the heart. What should we do to be saved? And He brings regeneration, and He brings new life, and He makes them whole, and He makes them holy. But the whole point is that the act of the Spirit is no longer one of, you know, if you're really going to grow and live, it's not a matter of confrontation. It's a matter of adoration. So their whole problem is this, there's a trilogy of confrontation and what they need instead is a trilogy of adoration because we become like the things that we adore. And so the spirit that's going to work these things in our life, what he's going to do is to produce more adoration So take a moment, and as we transition to communion, let's just take a moment and kind of think about our own life. Kind of think about where we are. Think about the demands you make on those around you and those you love. Where do those demands come from? I mean, are they reasonable? Are they things that genuinely have their their good? Where do those demands come from? Maybe you feel weighted under the burden of someone else's demands and someone else's expectations. How do you handle that? Where do you go with those things? And then now take a moment and just think about, all right, the spirit we need. To be truly filled with the spirit is to have this totality of minds that think biblically and hearts that are engaged relationally and then lives that faithfully follow him. Where are you in your life? What area do you need more help and more encouragement? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you help make us the type of people who are filled with the Spirit. And what that means is we we know how to think well. So I pray for anyone who's come in this room and they're just wrestling with how to think well about who they are or certain issues or challenges that they may be facing in life or in the world. We ask that you give us clarity of mind and thought. We thank you that the power of your spirit is it will restore and transform our hearts so that we love well and we have a supernatural joy and we're emotionally and relationally healthy and connected to those that we love and care for. So I pray for anyone who's come in this room and they they recognize that there's a weakness and an inadequacy where they're not emotionally healthy or connected to those uh, that they love. We pray that you would heal that. Pray for anyone who who's come in this room and their heart and their love for you has gone cold and that we can develop so subtly and subconsciously an adversarial posture to you. Help us to, to be filled not with confrontation, but adoration. 
And I pray for anyone who recognizes their, their life, they need counsel and might. They, they know the right things they need to do, but don't know if they have the courage or strength to do them. pray that you would empower them by your Spirit. I pray that you would provide whatever grace it is we need in our specific times of need. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, each week at Trinity, we, we come to the Lord's table. And this week, I was thinking about one of the classic prayers from the Book of Common Prayer that was written six, seven hundred years ago. And, you know, this is a beautiful aspect of, of worship that's not faddish. And we won't be embarrassed for saying in a decade, but it's a prayer of humble access. So let me repeat it as we come. It says, we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to show mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood so that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body. So one of the ways our we're made clean is the symbolic dynamic that his clean body is taken into us and we become clean. And our souls are washed through his most precious blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, This bread represents my body that's broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, This cup represents my blood that's shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins for many. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.